Now the question we're going to be asking tonight is how, how do we resist the forward progress of the movement of God? Like, is there something that we do or we're involved in that we actually resist being swept up by where God's taken us? And to answer this question, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. In Acts chapter 6, seven men were chosen to help the early church give out the daily distribution to the widows who were in need among them. The church has grown to over 10,000 people, and there were a number of widows who were in need. And so the church collected resources to give out a daily distribution for those widows in need. And they needed some people to lead the charge, and they chose seven men. One of the men they chose, his name was Stephen, and Luke says that the church chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And these men wisely served the church and the issues that were springing up within so that they can be a healthier church. They led well. And then Luke records that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they were seeing great things happen. Now, the church was not immune to problems. We've already had a few issues kind of creep up in the church through the book of Acts so far. But they were sensitive to God's leading. They dealt with the problems and they continued to grow. They, They saw the word of God continue to increase and many people come to know Christ and the church was growing. And soon after Stephen, uh, he was clearly given leadership in this area of the daily distribution and the service among the church, but he also was doing other things. It says that he was telling people about Christ, he was preaching the kingdom of God, he was doing great signs and wonders, and he began to face some opposition, which is not uncommon, both then and now. When you talk about Jesus and you seek to live according to his kingdom ethic, you're bound to run into some opposition from the world. And so, uh, Stephen encountered some opposition from some of the religious leaders. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, I want to read you the accusations that were coming down from the religious leaders to Stephen. It says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? 
So before we get into Stephen's response, I want to look at the accusations that are leveled against Stephen. There are two of them primarily. One is that they are accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple and against the law. If you remember, we just read this accusation. They said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they brought him before the council and they said this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And you see at least two things being brought against Stephen. One, he's speaking against the temple. And two, he's speaking against the law. These are the accusations. Now, as we look at Stephen's response, I want you to notice that his response is fairly lengthy. It's actually the longest speech in the book of Acts. 52 verses. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read that whole passage tonight, but I encourage you to read it sometime, especially if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament. If you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, if you read Stephen's account, he basically sums up the Old Testament from Abraham all the way up to the time of Christ in 52 verses. So if you want a snapshot about what the Old Testament's about, just read this chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 7. But we can see from the accusations of the religious leaders that they were resisting this forward progress of God, the church, and they were resisting the movement of God in at least two ways. The first way they were resisting what God was doing is that they were focused on a place instead of a person. They were focused on a place instead of the person of God Himself. And we see this when they, when they accused Stephen of speaking against the temple, this holy place. And the second way they were resisting the movement of God was that they were focusing on the past, the law and the customs, instead of the present and the future that God had for them. So those are the two ways that they were resisting God and bringing accusations against Stephen. And now let's look at how Stephen responds to such accusations. And like I mentioned, Acts 7, Acts 7 is a great summary of the Old Testament. If you want to know what has happened since Abraham to Jesus, this is a great summary but I do want to, I want to drop down into a few places in Acts 7 to help build Stephen's case that he is laying out here against the religious leaders. The first accusation goes like this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now, I think we can understand that we can kind of see where they're coming from. I mean, the temple within, within Jerusalem was the center of the city. And it was the center of cultural Judaism, religious Judaism. It was where God's special presence would be. And so to hear someone speak against that was clearly offensive. But Stephen actually is going to build a case that God has always been present with His people. And He's always been present in a variety of ways. And I just want to look at a few of them here. Stephen starts with Abraham. And he says this. He said, God appears to Abraham not in the land of Canaan, 
You know, not in Jerusalem, but in Mesopotamia. So God calls out Abraham to make him a great nation, but he calls him out not of Canaan, not of the promised land, but out of Mesopotamia. And he's going to bring him to the promised land. So first of all, God clearly is able to appear and be with his people outside of the temple. Okay? He's there with Abraham. Next, we see uh, Joseph. Stephen goes through Abraham's lineage, lands on Joseph, and he says, while Joseph was in Egypt, he was sold in slavery, taken to Egypt, and guess what? God was with him. So God was with his person, his man, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Canaan. So God must not be confined to a specific city or a specific place. Next, you see God appearing to Moses through an angel in the burning bush. It says in verse 33, Take off the sandals from your feet, the angel says to Moses, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Well, what makes the ground holy? God's there. But yet they're not in Jerusalem. And they're not in the temple. There's a bush that's burning here, but God is there. And so is holy. He's out in the wilderness outside of Egypt, and yet God's present with His people. Next, you see in verse 44, it talks about uh, the tent of meeting. And we know that when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, and they were going to the promised land, God gave them instruction to build this tent of meeting, that God's special presence would be among His people in this tent. Right? And so, God said, okay, construct this tent. This is how I want you to construct it. And I will be with you in a special way in this tent. And that, that worked for a while. And then David comes on the scene, King David, and he wants to build a house for the Lord. And God tells David, well, you're not going to be able to build the house, but your son Solomon will. And so when Solomon takes over, he builds the temple of God in Jerusalem. So now the temple is constructed, and God's special presence is with His people. Once again, through a different avenue, through the temple, but yet He's present with His people. But yet even Solomon, when he built this magnificent temple, said this. And Stephen quotes this passage in the book of Acts, chapter 7. He says, But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Was his presence in the temple? Surely it was. But was his presence only in the temple? I think not. I mean, He's God. He's made all things. How are you going to confine Him to a place? You can't. And even Solomon, at the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, erects the temple, and yet even Solomon is wise enough to know and sensitive enough to know we cannot contain the God of the universe in this building. But yet He can show His special presence here among His people. We know He'll be among His people. And so, what we see in Stephen's argument is that God is, has always been among His people, but it has looked a little different. Whether it was a burning bush, 
or Mount Sinai in the clouds, in the, in the fire, in the tent of meeting, in the temple. And what Stephen's saying is, can't you see that God has always been with His people and He's building up, He's leading it up, it's, it's progressing to one day God will be among His people. Just like He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, He will be among His people. He will even be in His people. And He's saying, you're, you're clinging to the temple, but God came in the flesh and dwelt among you and you've rejected Him. Because see, one thing you've noticed, if you've read the Old Testament, and clearly these men have, when you had the tent of meeting, for example, and then you built the temple, what happened to the tent of meeting? You don't hear about it. Because you don't use it anymore. It's obsolete. Why? Because something better is on the scene. The temple. So what Stephen's saying is, why are you still clinging to the temple? Something better is here. God Himself in the flesh. And yet you're still clinging to the temple. But they were not excited about this. They clearly took offense because they did not embrace Christ as the Messiah. As God among His people. The second accusation is focused on the law of Moses. Here's the accusation. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen has been preaching the gospel, which is Christ is the Messiah. He is the presence of God among his people. And he is the only way to know God personally. It's not through the animal sacrifices anymore. It's not even through being Jewish anymore. And so people were a little taken back from that. And so they're saying, you're speaking against the law of Moses. You're speaking against what God has delivered to us in the past. But what Stephen's saying is, yeah, but you're missing what God has given you in the present. And for the future. So why was this message of the gospel at odds, such at odds with the religious leaders? Well, I think when you look at his argument, Stephen lays out his argument this way. God raises up Abraham to make a great nation and to be a blessing to the nations. And then who who does he raise up? Several generations later, he raises up Joseph. He tells Joseph in a dream that your brothers will bow down to you. And then what do they do to Joseph? Do they say, thank God that he has given us a deliverer and a shepherd and a leader? No. They, they attempt to kill him and then they decide, well, we'll just sell him into slavery. And so they kick him out of the father's house. They take him and they sell him into slavery. So he goes off to Egypt and you may know the story. But the point is, even when God raises up a leader in Joseph, he's rejected by his brothers. And then several uh, generations later, you know, when the Egyptians forgot who Joseph was, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and then he raises up another man, Moses. And listen to what Stephen says about Moses. He says, this is in verse 23, verses 23 through 28. 
He says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now listen to this next part. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But what? They did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So again, God is raising up a deliverer to bring salvation to his people. And how do they respond? They push him aside. And then finally, obviously the greater Joseph, the greater Moses, Jesus comes on the scene. God has sent his own son to be the leader, the Messiah, to bring salvation. And then what do they do? Push him aside. Who made you ruler and judge? See, Stephen's saying, you're clinging to the past. You're clinging to it. Look what God has for you now. He has come among His people, yet even though you have betrayed Him and murdered Him, will you embrace Him? Will you accept His deliverance and what He's doing now and in the future? But they would not. And listen to what he says. He concludes his pronouncement, his defense, in verses 51 through 53. He says, you stiff-necked people. And that doesn't go well when you're you know, defending yourself. <laughs> you just kind of get straight to the point. You stiff-necked people. In other words, you will not turn. You will not turn. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Don't miss that. What was the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. He said, maybe you are circumcised physically, but your heart, you have no idea what God's doing. Your heart is so hard. Your ears are clogged up. You cannot hear what even God is doing in your midst. And listen to what he says. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They are resisting the forward movement of God. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. Isn't that interesting that Stephen's saying, how are you breaking the law? You're not embracing the one it points to. That's how you're breaking it. Isn't that interesting? It's not that you committed adultery or murder or you cheated someone or you lied. You broke the law because you, you're missing. The law is like a signpost saying the righteous one's coming. He's going to deliver his people. And you are rejecting him. And so you're following the details of the law, but you're missing what the law is pointing to. And that's Christ himself. And so we see these religious leaders... And next week we're going to see how they respond to Stephen. And it's not, it's not very good. But they're, re, they're resisting this forward movement of God, which is clearly moving through Jerusalem 
as we're seeing over 10,000 people added to the church. It's moving through Jerusalem, and yet it hits this opposition, and they resist the working of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things I started thinking about, and I started asking myself this question, what could be holding you back from being caught up in the forward movement of God? We're not, we're not Pharisees, we're not religious leaders in the temple, but yet it seems to me that we could still resist the Holy Spirit and we can resist this forward movement of God. See, God is always moving forward. He's always taking ground. His kingdom is continually growing and expanding. He's at work. It's His kingdom. He's at work. I want to show you a picture this picture up here. Does this look familiar? Does anybody know this building? Yeah. Green Street Presbyterian Church. Never really noticed it. You know, you come down the Calhoun Expressway, and there it is right there on your left as you come down uh, into downtown. And I noticed that you know, this is, I was thinking to myself, this is a beautiful church building. And so I tried to read a little bit about it. I couldn't find a lot of information on it. Uh, but what I did see is that this church building is a vis- visible representation of a vibrant congregation that was started in the 1800s. A group of people that called themselves Christians and were following Christ. This is a representation in the city of Augusta. This was a group of people. But then my eyes dropped down to the bottom right-hand corner of this church building. And you see a sign of emptiness planted in the ground. And you may not be able to see it from there, but there's a large for sale sign in the front yard of this church building. So I got to thinking, I got to thinking, you know, I wonder what happened. But I don't want to discourage you because, you know, even though this building may be empty, God's church is filling up. I mean, He's he's at work. But the question still remains, you know, what could be hindering us from being caught up in the forward movement of God? As an individual, as a community of believers... You know, is there anything that's keeping us from moving forward? And here's a few things I was thinking about. Is I was just thinking of myself. It could be a place. You know, I don't know if it is a place for, for us, but it could be a place. You know, we could become so fond or attached to a place, so attached even, that we... Fear loosening our grips on that place and becoming sensitive to God, whatever He may have us do. And I know, you know, Sig and I experienced that when we were in Winston-Salem. We were in Winston-Salem for 11 years. And to be open to moving took a little, you know, little time. But slowly, our hands began, began to be open. And for us, it may be a city. For some, it may be a building, or it could be a location, or it could be a place. 
but we could be so attached to it that we would not loosen our grip in order to move forward in the movement of God. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were so attached to that place, they could not embrace what God was doing in their midst. Or it could, be, it could be that we have become so familiar with God and His ways, we've become so familiar that it's almost caused us to lose our sensitivity to what God can do. You know, it just, we just kind of go through the motions and we just stop praying prayers of faith and we just lose that sensitivity that perhaps God can still use me. You know, perhaps God still has something for me or for us. And it's just, you're kind of just going through the motions. Clinging to way, the way you've always done it. I've always done this. You're in your routine. And you just can't open your hand to be caught up in the forward movement of God. You know, or some things, it's your culture. I mean, for many of us, we come from a similar culture, I would think. But culture can, can be a tricky thing because it can kind of crowd out Christianity to some degree in your life. There are some things that are American that may not be Christian, believe it or not. And we are Christians first. And we have to allow that to trump anything else in our culture. Or it will begin to confine us and we will not be caught up in the forward movement of God. We will be found resisting. And that's not where we want to be. Or it could be, we're, you know, you just, we're clinging to certain programs or meetings or strategies and it just keeps us from being caught up in that stream of the movement of God and what He wants to do in us individually and in this city. You know, God, like I said, God's church is growing. You know, be encouraged by that. God's church is growing. And it will continue to grow. The question is, will you, will I, will us as a body move forward with God and be sensitive to His leading and be caught up in the movement, the forward movement of God? Or will we be found resisting? So what could be holding us back? I want to encourage you tonight to place your focus on the person of Christ. Not a place. Not a location. But the person. The person of Christ. That's how we move forward. That He becomes our focus. We focus on Him. And then secondly, I want to encourage you tonight to not live in the past. We all have pasts that are filled with all kinds of things, both individually and corporately. Some good things, some not so good things. But we cannot live there. God is all about the present and the future. He's all about moving forward, building His kingdom, bringing it to consummation. And so we can thank God that He has brought us through our past and all the things that we've done in our past. Embrace His grace and forgiveness Come to the realization that we are a new creature in Christ and that He'll complete what He starts, both in you and in us collectively. All we need to do is be caught up by Him and where He's going and what He's doing. I don't believe God's done with you 
or me, or this church. I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, about what God is going to do in and through us in this city. And I think He's not done with us at all. But I do want to encourage us to move forward in faith, trusting Him to do exceedingly more than we can ask or we can think. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to respond in a song. And then I'll close in a word of prayer in just a moment. But let's, let's pray together right now. God, thank you for Stephen and his boldness. I just cannot imagine what it would be like to stand among your contemporaries in a culture that you are very familiar with, raised in, raised to respect and revere, and yet when Christ came into his life, totally changed how he viewed things. He became so focused on his present and his future and how you were going to use him and use the church that he had the boldness to speak out against these religious leaders. As we'll see next week, to his death. God, I pray as, as a group of believers here who want to be caught up, just caught up in the forward movement of yours in this city and around the world. I pray that you would make our heart soft to the leading of your spirit, that you would make our minds alert to what you teach us in your word, that you would make our hands and our feet diligent to be used by you and however you see fit. Even if it's in a way that we've never experienced before. God, we want to be open. We want to be open to how you want to use us as individuals and as your church here in Augusta. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.